The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey Rockheads, stop waltzing your Matilda and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 588 with guest Ethan Weiner, recorded live Sunday, June 27, 2010. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering Silverlight 4 video training with Billy Hollis on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Teller, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Grape City Data Dynamics, makers of ActiveReports.net. Simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET Web Applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. And now, the man who still won't eat a Vegemite sandwich, Carl Franklin. Ouch, that didn't sound good. <laughs> Richard and I are here in uh, the Gold Coast, uh, Australia, at TechEd uh, 2010, TechEd Australia. Coming at you from the fishbowl where they're right. dropping plates. <laughs> Sorry, sounds like somebody just dropped like an entire cart of plates and silverware. Jeez. Oh, man, that's terrible. Uh, but we're having a ton of fun. We are, are having so much fun. Uh, I'm about to go up on stage and play a little more guitar. Yep. I'll be throwing out T-shirts. Throwing out T-shirts, and I guess there's a jam session tonight. Jam tonight. What is there, like 2,700 people here? Yeah, something like that. And tonight they're the attendee parties tonight, and it's a house party. So they're using the convention center, but they've got an area where they're playing cricket. There's some comedians in another room. Huge Xbox tournament. Laser tag downstairs. Yeah, that's crazy. Like, it's and gonna meat be pies. A that's a big thing here. Oh, yes. Well, the meat pies, uh, some Indian, like lots of different foods. So. By the way, uh, I ate bugs. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, you, you ate Morton Bay bugs, which Morton are just a, Bay bugs yeah. are what you. I I took a picture of the menu because I just couldn't believe it said yeah. bugs, you know. But they're um, but they're, they're like crabs. They're kind of a uh, kind of lobster, shrimpy, shrimpy lobstery yeah. thing. And uh, but they they're very odd looking when you see them alive. They yeah they they look like little shoehorns with yeah. tails on them. Yeah, that's it, Morton Bay bugs. Yeah. Well, anyway, uh, we thought we would uh, just say hello from TechEd and introduce this show that we did during the live weekend. With Ethan Weiner, who uh, was the guy who gave me my break in the business. So let's uh, roll that tape now. You're listening to .NET Rocks Live Weekend. Richard and Carl here. 
pumping them out all weekend for you. And we're here with my good old friend, Ethan Weiner, from the days of your Crescent Software fame. Hi, Ethan. Hey, Carl. How are you? Oh, I'm darn good. I'm darn good. We're, uh, we're, you know what we're doing here. I mean, you probably looked at the webpage and thought, that guy is crazy. What is he doing? Yeah, but uh, we, we like the opportunity to catch up with, uh, catch up with people who are doing stuff in the .NET community, and, and you're really not part of the .NET community, but we have you on here because you are part of .NET history, whether you know it or not. Okay. <laughs> uh, and for those who don't know, Ethan Weiner started Crescent Software back in 80 what? 86. 86 in Stamford? Uh, um, actually, I was in Norwalk, Norwalk. Uh, at that time, I think. Norwalk, Connecticut, which is near Stamford. It's down there in Fairfield County and yeah. uh, right next to New York City. And um, I uh, happened to get a job there right as Visual Basic 1.0 was just getting popular. And uh, they were making tools for quick basic programmers. And, of course, your thing was assembly language tools. Right. But the thing that I really, really loved about your stuff was that you had such an – and you're obviously my mentor in this. You had such an open uh, way about educating your customers. You really wanted your customers to be smart. And at the time, C was the was the language of choice. And you were saying, no, if you're going to learn something so low level, just go all the way to assembly language and then uh, call it from Quick Basic, which is actually really a good compiler and a good language. And uh, so then, of course, uh, Visual Basic came around. That's when I started working for you and doing tech support and, uh, and then building tools. Your flagship product was Quick Pack Professional which was a library of assembly routines that you could call from Quick Basic and Basic 7. And then that got ported to uh, Windows into DLLs, and the DLLs were written in assembly language. Woohoo! <laughs> That's right. The manly men language. <laughs> That's right. We don't mess around with C. We go right to assembly language. But these uh, tools did all sorts of things from so – I remember the big ones were sorting and searching through arrays, which were the primary data structures of the day. Right, right, and fast file access, and being able to do more than what uh, uh, you know the normal quick basic, uh, you know, random access and binary kind of uh, you know access. Uh, there was you know some other file things that gave you control. For example, in quick basic, one of the perennial problems was uh, since everything was floppy drives back then, uh, and occasional hard drives, but floppy mostly. Uh, you know, if the disk wasn't in the drive or if there was something wrong with the disk, the whole program would hang. Right. And you'd get a DOS-level error, and your beautiful screen would go away, and there was no way to, uh, no easy, no reasonable way to trap that. And basically, you could use on error, but then that made the programs much, much larger and bloated and slower and yeah. uh, added so much extra overhead. So we had assembly routines that would trap those, what they called critical errors. It could even do stuff like read and write sectors on the hard disk. That's correct. You could write your own Norton Utilities. You could write your own Norton Utilities. That was our claim to fame, right? right. Doesn't make it right, but you could do it. <laughs> and just the, you know the the but you know when you bought your tools, you guys would have you ship full source code to all the tools, everything, and right. it would be commented assembly language, heavily commented with the idea. It's like you know an instruction book, you know. Uh, not uh, and if you look at some people's source codes, you know it's you know it's it's not it's not that illuminating. <laughs> right, right. But, yeah, and that was really my my main interest. You know, the very first product I came out with in 1986 was the original QuickPack, and at that time, you know, libraries, add-on libraries, 
uh, were you know, typically three hundred to five hundred dollars. Uh, written in C for use with C, which is fine, uh, but all you would get is an object code and uh, object file, and no uh, no instructions as to you know no educational value. Right, you had uh, to know what you were doing with that file in order to. Right, use but it. In, and if you wanted to, you know, if you wanted to learn C, I wonder how they did that. I would like to be able to do that too. You know, you're out of luck. You know, they wouldn't tell you. Yeah, uh, and uh, so that was kind of the original concept was to come out with a library of really cool stuff. Uh, and of course, in this case, for basic, with all the source code, I think there were like seventy routines in the original version. We ended up with five hundred and fifty, I think, by, by the final quickback professional when I sold the business. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, I think there were like uh, sixty-five or seventy routines, uh, you know, with uh, with heavily commented source code, and there was even a little booklet called the Assembly Tutor. Assembly Tutor. Yeah, that explained that. And you uh, even had yeah. an electronics tutor. Uh, that's right. Yeah, the hardware tutor. Yeah, hardware and, that, tutor. And, and that's on my website, the uh, hardware tutor, and it still gets a lot of hits. Uh, yeah, because it's a, uh, you know, Jay Monroe did all the cartoons uh, and drawings for it, and uh, and did a great job. And it's a very accessible introduction to electronics. Yeah, without any math at all. And I love that. I love, and and also your customers just adored us because, um, because of that. And it really was a community. And I, you know, I, I, be, I remember being in tech support and hearing from customers that would, you know, sometimes it, you know, most of the time it's just all business. But every once in a while, man, you get some customer who was just tickled to death, you know, and and uh, with the, with the products, but it's just having, you know, uh, a problem with a particular routine, and they just want to talk and talk and talk. You know? Well, yeah, well, because yeah, because I can't talk to their wife about that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and and you know, I get that uh, even to this day uh, with my current business, which is acoustic treatment for audio, uh, you know, uh, audio file setups, home theaters, and mm. recording studios. And a lot of these people are geeky like me, and uh, uh, you know, and they have nobody else to talk to, and right. they call and and they bend your ear and they ask you this and they ask you that and they brag about their equipment and yeah. oh I just got these speakers and met, rattle off some big long model number I never heard of I stopped even trying to keep track of model numbers of anything yeah, yeah. even the stuff I own I don't even know the model numbers and in a couple of cases I don't even know the brand but I, w- <laughs> I would dare to say though that company was really the beginning of the the visual basic community where, you know, it was there at the beginning. It was a pivotal part of it for sure. For sure, you even pretty much single-handedly provided all the content for Jim Fawcett's Basic Pro magazine, which then became Visual Basic Programmers Journal, mm-hmm. which of course then went on to do VBits and all of that stuff. You you pretty much were the guy who wrote all the articles for the first magazine, and and pretty much a lot of them after that. Mm-hmm. But. Uh, so, so you you really were there at the very very beginning of everything. Of course, you know Visual Basic isn't isn't the .NET community, but you you look at Visual Studio today and it looks an awful lot like Visual Basic. You know, it borrowed a lot from from that, which all came out of the basic language. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm laughing because you've I've been poking around your website and you still have like the ad from 1987, which this is predating VB yeah. right. for the, the tools that you would run in Quick Basic, but requires DOS 2.0 <laughs> That's <right>. or higher. We're <laughs> uh, not going to work, you know. Be, take it seriously now. Upgrade your gear. When was the last time you even did any of that work, like in DOS? You, you know, amazing you would ask. I was I, I modified a DOS uh, compiled uh, a Quick Basic program two days ago. Oh, really? <laughs> And well, you know, I, I have you know, with my current business, I have uh, 
uh, a website, and I have my personal website. And the, re- the online reporting that our uh, web host offers doesn't have all the things I wanted. So somewhere around four or five years ago, I wrote my own reporting program in QuickBasic, uh, just because it was, you know, I knew it, I could do it, and I'm right. very efficient in it, yeah. uh, to do exactly what I want. And, you know, instead of having to, you know, see the first 10 results and then hit next and then wait, you know, three seconds for a page load, right. you know, it just loads everything, any date range. Uh, so every day, uh, first thing I do every day, besides, you know, after I check my email, is download the log files manually, and this program converts them into a very efficient format with a count of each file name and type and extensions and all that stuff, and I have full reporting. And I had a, an, uh, we recently started a, uh, a, a blog, uh, not a blog, what do you call it, a uh, RSS, uh, yeah, RSS you know, feed. Pod, podcast. Uh, okay. a, a, guy, a fellow who works for me, Jim, uh, decided he wanted to start doing those. Uh, so the RSS file type wasn't recognized, and he calls me up and says, well, how many people have, you know, looked at the RSS page? So I said, well, I don't know, you know, the program doesn't recognize that, so I went in and changed that. And fortunately, <laughs> I made a batch file the last time, because, you know, the, you know, the compile options are pretty, pretty detailed, uh, yeah, yeah. uh, with, you know, in the linking. So I just had a batch file, so I, I literally called the thing up in, in, uh, in Quick Basic, stepped through a couple things, said, oh yeah, okay, here's where it is, you know, saved. Ran the batch file and boom, it was done in literally five minutes. I had you know had added the feature. You know. That's awesome when you can when you just have a tool and it works. And you're just parsing the log files, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. I parse the log files manually and create a a, a random access file uh, that uh, holds you know. So if, if like you know, these log files, some of them are you know many megs uh, in one day. You mm. know, my acoustic stack uh, gets like fifteen thousand hits a month. Yeah, uh, so that's a lot of hits a day. So this just looks through all the file names. Uh, it creates a random file. I think I set aside up to 40 bytes or 48, 50, I forget, bytes for the uh, file name. I think I set it up so it's 64 bytes for the file name and a long integer of the number of hits. And it just creates a random file with, with the name and, you know, in case it's a full So you keep it. your file name short, but you're planning on 2 billion hits. There you go. <laughs> no, 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 no. The file names can be up to 50, whatever it is. You know, I, I don't have it right in front of me, so I can't yeah, tell you. Yeah. But, but it, it, you know, so if there were, you know, 75 unique files that got visited that day, uh, then, you know, there will be 75 entries into this random access file. So it's very efficient. The log files are like, oh, uh, I think 8 meg to 15 meg, something like that per right. day. And these are like 35K when, after I convert them. Right. So, and I save the log files also, you know, I zip them up once a week. I have this whole thing I've been doing for literally years and years. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. And, and I've written a couple of other programs in, in Windows Basic, though I used uh, Liberty Basic. And I don't know if it's okay to say that. Ah, oh, sure. What is Liberty Basic? I even, never even heard of it. Well, it's, it's very much like Quick Basic, but for Windows. And it's actually written in Smalltalk. It's very interesting. And I oh. haven't, haven't used it in a couple of years, but I wanted to write a couple of Windows programs for my company's website, acoustic calculating uh, programs for, you know, for our customers and for the general public. And, uh, uh, and I had a, a quick basic version, but, you know, it's kind of clumsy and crude and doesn't look that nice. I said, well, geez, I should at least learn a little bit. And I didn't really want to get into the entire VB6 yeah. learning curve and expense. So I uh, uh, spent, you know, a week looking around at all the freeware and inexpensive uh, things, and I came across Just Basic, it's called, which is a, free, a freebie thing. And it was really, really nice and very easy to use. I mean, you have, obviously have to learn stuff in the Windows method. Uh, you don't pull the keyboard. The keyboard calls you. Uh, but, <laughs> wow, that's <laughs> interesting. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, once, once you get past, past that, you know, kind of mindset, and uh, so I, you know, I splurged the fifty-five dollars or whatever to buy the actual commercial version called Ooh, Basic. Right. 
and uh, and and it was great. And I have uh, two pretty you know nice little you know acoustic calculating programs on the Real Traps website, and uh, uh, so so that was fun. Okay, that's cool. You um, also are a hardware guy, and uh, you built some interesting stuff way back when, before you guys, before computers, mm-hmm. before you got into computers, for studios. Right. What was that all about? Well, I, I yeah, I've always been into electronics and, you know, taking TV sets apart when I was 12 years old uh, and always wanted to, well, it's, you know, when you're, when you're 18 years old and 20 and stuff, you don't have a lot of money and you see some, you know, $2,000 parametric equalizer and, boy, that'd be great, but, you know, who can afford that? You so. and Richard really ought to hang out because <laughs> that's exactly what he did. But my reaction to you, the comment there is not, you know, it's one thing to take them apart. The question is, did you put them back together again? <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> not, not always. Yeah. But I'm talking about, you know, really young. I remember when I was 12, uh, we had an old black and white TV set that finally broke, and we were going to get a new one. And my father said, sure, you can take it apart. Yeah. And I clipped out all the resistors and capacitors and lovingly straightened out the leads and laid them out on the tabletop and, you know, had all these parts and uh, and played with them, you know, as if they were toy soldiers. Yeah. <laughs> I, re- I remember dumping the flyback transformer into something. What was it? I think I melted a soldier with it. There you go. Uh, it's about 30,000 volts, right? That's a pretty good arc. It sent the cat into the other room anyway. <laughs> but yeah, so I've always been interested in how things work, and I've never been a math kind of person. I, I, I prefer to see things in practical, common sense, plain English kind of terms, and I've been lucky to have uh, uh, some good mentors over the years yeah. uh, who have helped me, you know, people who do understand all the the higher level math, uh, and I, so, so I understand this stuff empirically pretty well, uh, and I've certainly designed a lot of circuits. That, uh, you know, by the time I got to be around thirty, I was uh, I got pretty knowledgeable, and I designed my own synthesizer. Again, I couldn't afford a mini Moog uh, when they came out. Uh, that was you know really fabulous, so I built my own. Uh, it was actually even a little fancier than that, and I still have it. And there's a bunch, you know, a couple tunes on my website uh, with that. So now I just use software since. And mixing console too. You I, built well, one. I built my own mixing console. Yeah, yeah, it was uh, sixteen channel console with 12 mic inputs and 16 output channels. Now, did you just go to Radio Shack and say, you know, I need, you know, there's parts there that you just order up? Well, well not or? from Radio Shack, but from places like Mauser and DigiKey, and I don't even necessarily remember. There was a, a really nice place in Norwalk at the time called Park Electronics, and they were a major industrial supplier, mm. and you could get anything there. Uh, but yeah, Radio Shack is, you know, first of all, it costs five times more than what Yeah, yeah, work. and second of all, they want your social security number for batteries. <laughs> <laughs> but, and they don't necessarily have a lot of high performance parts and a lot of stuff. And if you need, you know, a hundred capacitors, you're going to pay a dollar and a half a piece or 15 cents a piece, right. uh, for even better ones. So, yeah, so not so much Radio Shack, though. Maybe I bought a couple of knobs or switches there occasionally. But yeah, I built a lot of gear and all, almost all of that is on my website, ethanweiner.com, and the articles page. There's, uh, you know, almost everything that I did, I used to write for Recording Engineer Producer Magazine. That was in the late 70s and uh, early 80s. Hmm. And did a lot of construction articles. So let's see. Well, um, I, I'll just, just as long as we're talking about hardware, yeah. I'll mention I've gotten back into hardware a little bit because uh, I, I don't know if you remember, I've been uh, always kind of into pinball. And even when we had That's right. software, I had Gorgar and Firepower. Love it. That's right. And uh, those are from 1979 and 1980, respectively. And I hadn't played them, moved them here to our current house about 15 years ago when we moved, and hadn't played them in about 10 years. And, uh, you know, had had uh, just, you know, had stuff piled on top of them. And 
one day I said, you know, I really like this. I want to get back into this. And, of course, neither of them worked because, you know, batteries had leaked acid onto IC sockets and oh. stuff. So it took about a year of, you know, just part-time, obviously, tweaking and going through, and there's a lot of mechanical things to bring them back. Uh, and a lot of electronic stuff, I had to do a lot of uh, board-level repair and got them both working perfectly about a year ago. And then Ellie and I decided that we wanted to get more pinball machines. <laughs> oh, wow. Your, your answer to, this is not a normal wife reaction to you spending a lot of time on a hobby. Is let's do more. <laughs> right. Well, well, actually, she likes it, and uh, she plays more than I do. We oh, play every, every day. For, I play at least a half an hour, and mostly about an hour we play, and she usually plays a few more games after that. Uh, but we got another 1980s vintage machine that was uh, uh, kind of a fixer-upper and uh, and did some work on that and got another one from 1996 called Rescue 911 that's really fabulous. And uh, uh, fortunately, that one works and hasn't had too many problems. But uh, but I've been doing a lot of you know board level repair and you know and <laughs> well especially as something from 1980s that's straight up old fashioned TTL circuitry right it it, it well there, uh, there's some CMOS uh, some TTL uh, and a lot of EPROMs that are custom burned and and uh, 6800 CPU so it's yeah it's 30 year old technology but it's all discrete uh, uh, or, you know I mean there's no surface mounted stuff yeah there's actually capacitors are soldered you know through plated through holes in the circuit. Yeah, there are actually holes drilled in the circuit board. <laughs> right. There was no no wave soldering done here. Like this was built by humans to be repaired by humans. Exactly, a lot of point to point wiring, uh, huge wiring harnesses under the play fields and all the light bulbs. And you know the sockets are old, and so sometimes the bulb won't work, and you put a new bulb in, and it still doesn't work. Oh, yeah. the socket is all rusty. Well, and all those rubber bumpers wear out over time too. Yep. Like that yep. stuff just has to be replaced. There's no substitute for it, much That's less right. damage. And I remember firepower; it was a multi ball too. That's so. right. Yep. Lots yep. of deck damage. Uh, yeah, and, and, and you can still buy the rubber pieces. You can buy new ones. Uh, uh, you know, they still make that stuff. And though there's not many new pinballs being manufactured now. No, but there is a cult of people keeping pinball machines alive. Absolutely. And, Absolutely. and all video game machines, for that matter. I have, I have a, a buddy back home that uh, has had to build an outbuilding he calls the arcade <laughs> because there's too many machines now. And it yeah. just, yeah, ended up pouring a concrete pad and a little bit of heat and lots and lots of electricity for his own little private arcade. Did I ever send you a, a copy, Ethan, of Richard's uh, Goliath story about that big hard drive with the magnets in it that yes. broke? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we were, we're used to repairing discrete electronics. It is something we spent some time doing. Right, right. Yeah. And uh, by the time by the time uh, you started Crescent Software, we, did you left all your hardware uh, behind? Uh, well, yeah, most of the studio stuff. Because when I uh, when I left the recording studio, it was still a working business. Uh, so I took a couple of pieces, but mostly uh, uh, I, I left that behind. Uh, but uh, I have you know I have to think about what I what I still have. But I have you know some microphones and, and stuff from back then. Yeah, but in terms of building hardware or uh, yeah, tweaking yeah, around with it. Yeah, none of the hardware I had built then. And now, of course, you, know, you can do everything in software, better, quieter, less distortion. Right, right, right. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik, who want me to tell you about JustMock, Telerik's mocking tool. And unlike most mocking tools, JustMock can work with non-virtual methods, sealed classes, and static methods and classes, giving you complete control over your code. And, of course, you get that great Telerik quality and support. You can read more and download the tool at telerik.com slash justmock. And, hey, don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks 
on their Facebook fan page, facebook.com slash Telerik. You know, the one thing that you're um, that I know about you that may, may, many people don't know is that you have made a, sort of a side career out of debunking audio myths. Right. And boy, you know, you really opened my eyes when we talked about uh, about this. My understanding, and let me, you can, I'll start the story, and you can take it from there. Is that when uh, digital to analog and analog to digital converters really hit mainstream was when CDs, uh, CD players started coming out, and the the converters were pretty bad that they were using in them, and especially the D to A converters in these things, and uh, tended to really just destroy really high end frequencies like treble frequencies. And so they all sounded harsh and stuff. And this was mainstream uh, people's experiences of digital audio. And so, well, right, sir, let, let me just interrupt and say it was sure. the perception. Yeah, and, and I can talk to all of that much more in much more detail. But sure, yeah, we'll go, we'll go, go right ahead because that's that's where I start the story. Okay. Well, you know, in the beginning there was analog tape. You know, and we, we don't have to talk about wire recorders. And analog <laughs> tape was okay. But, you know, there's head bump, which gives you, you know, depending on the tape speed, you know, some kind of a boost around 50 hertz, and then it rolls off really quickly below that. And the high end is pretty variable, depending on which batch of tape you're using, and you have to keep adjusting the bias. And there was always tape hiss, and that was always a problem, even with, you know, really, really expensive professional machines, uh, you know, two-inch machines and uh, uh, two-inch wide tape. Uh, so tape hiss was always a problem. Yep. And, you know, chemical engineers worked for decades to, you know, make better quality tape that had less hiss and lower distortion. And they used compression like Dolby and DBX to, to compress it going to tape and uncompress it coming off, and that helped. Well, well, but it never well, that, sounded natural. And, and even aside from the compression, which, of course, buying a DBX or Dolby was a box was an external, you know, separate purchase. Mm-hmm. But even aside from that, uh, they would boost the treble, right. you know, which is, you know, inexpensive circuit. You know, and that was just standard uh, uh, they would boost the treble going in and then cut it back by a corresponding amount on the playback, yep. and that would reduce hiss. But still, you could always hear tape hiss in the quiet spots, maybe not in the loud, you know, in the middle of a screaming rock and roll tune, but when everything stops, you could always hear the hiss. Right. If, uh, and uh, so, that, so, you know, so there was always a desire, I guess. And, you know, and, and I'll just mention it's the same thing with LP Records, uh, where they uh, boost the treble and roll off the bass a lot while pressing the... Uh, recording, making the original recording, and then they reversed that yeah. playback, uh, which, uh, uh, anyways, so there was always a desire for that, and then, yeah, Sony and Phillips, uh, uh, you know, came up with a CD system. I would refute the conventional wisdom that early uh, converters and early digital sounded terrible. Uh, I think, in my opinion, it sounded infinitely better than tape and LPs. Now, I know some people like the sound of LPs. And they say, oh, I, you know, I don't care about that tech- technical stuff. I don't need no science. I like the way records sound. And that's fine. Mm. That's, you know, I think it's really a matter of you like a little bit of distortion and you like some of the coloration and yeah. some of the lower it's fidelity. It's, but it's pleasing, and that's okay. I mean, there are people that record digitally now that use tape simulators to add some of that kind of distortion. Right. And I've used that. Wow. Uh, that's you know, crazy. Yeah, they dirty it up. <laughs> yeah, they dirt. But you know, on a sparse thing, it can you know congeal a, a, a sparse mix. It has not a whole lot of instruments, and you just make it a little fuller and a little thicker in a pleasing way. Now, what I, my understanding of why some people report that early digital wasn't really uh, uh, was was not good is because when you know I was saying before when they uh, make an LP, they have to boost the treble uh, a lot, and then they roll it back. That's called the RIAA. Uh, curve, but uh, 
but some of the highs always get lost, so you have to boost the treble even a little bit more than what you want, and, uh, and they also add compressors. The heads uh, that vibrate the needle while they're cutting the master uh, are very expensive, and if they overheat, they'll burn out, and there's a $1,000 head. So they'll put a limiter in that just limits the high frequencies, let's say 10 kilohertz and above, so that if you hit it with a really hot, troubly you know, signal and a hard, hard rock with a lot of symbols, it won't burn out the cutter head, so you get kind of a, a glossy sheen to the sound, and, uh, uh, and, and some of that gets eaten up just by the medium, so when you play it back, it doesn't really sound that, uh, that glassy. I get it. So digital, digital sounded harsh because people had never heard frequencies that high before. Well, not only that, I think, and, and again, I, I can't say this for sure, but from what I've read and from people I've talked to who were there, because I never uh, was into vinyl mastering, that, a lot of the, that some of the early CDs were made using the same master tapes that were meant for use with vinyl. So they had too much trouble hmm. uh, that ended up coming out kind of spitty sounding. Oh, I get back. it. But I, I've heard, uh, Ellie was, uh, is and always was, my wife Ellie, uh, an audiophile, and she bought like the first Sony CD player when it was like $900 or something like that. Mm. And I remember hearing CDs that sounded great. I mean, they were amazing. They were better than any tape or, or vinyl item. Now, were you listening to classical or rock or uh, all no, the above? It was probably popular music. Mm. Uh, and I, I don't remember the details, but I, yeah, yeah. my experience with early CDs was, wow, this is a whole lot better. Yeah, that was my experience too. And I, I remember people complaining about the ADAT, the first ADAT, as having um, not very good converters in it. And especially when you mixed, um, you know, if you were like recording drums, then you had a lot of cymbals with a lot of really high frequencies that those tended to blend together poorly. Yeah, you know, I had an ADAT and one of the original ones, and I thought it was great. So, you know, but what do I know? <laughs> no, I did too, and I I never heard it. But, you know, this is what... This is what people tell me, and I guess this gets to the root of the problem, which is people don't trust their ears because they don't know the difference, and they trust what people say. That's and the people say true. digital is, was harsh and analog sounds better. I, I think pretty much that has been completely refuted, but now you've got – let's just say that digital audio is a, as perfect a reproduction of an audio signal as we can get. And with that – now we've got a whole bunch of companies that have been making their living selling the next best sounding audio thing. And what do they do? They, they don't have anything to sell you because it's perfect. Right. So they have to make up stuff like they have to say, well, 44 kilohertz isn't really good enough. Yes, theoretically, you know, quote, science says that that's enough, but we know better. So then they push 96 kilohertz, which, right. you know, and then they go to 192. And, you know, what, you know, what next, 20 megahertz? I mean, you know, you can only hear Yeah, you so can only high. hear so high. Yeah. Right. This will make your fillings vibrate As a matter same. of fact, if, you're, if you can hear 12K, you're pretty good. Yeah. Well, well at my age, yeah, I, and I'm 61, uh, and I can hear the last time I checked a couple months ago, I could just about hear 14 kilohertz. Right. Uh, but, you know, but music still sounds good to me. I don't think there's a whole lot of really usable useful stuff above there and yeah. yes younger people can hear higher but no, you know i don't know anybody that can hear over like 20 or 21 kilohertz or you'd want to i mean that if you can hear it it'll drive you crazy <laughs> seriously that's pretty damn high yeah so but, yeah. What, yeah so tell us about the myth of you know so and i don't maybe we shouldn't call them but there's a cable company that likes to sell you hundred dollar cables at best buy and they're, you know, or your local music store, and they're no better than a $20 cable. But or a $4 they have, cable, But right. they have snake oil science behind them. Well, it's even, it's even worse than that, and it's even a whole, whole lot worse than that. 
the first scam I'm aware of, and there's a lot of this is on my website, uh, ethanweiner.com, and my articles page. There's a whole section called Audio Magic that has just tons and tons of stuff. Uh, but the first scam I'm aware of was many years ago with SpeakerWire. That uh, you know, a, the, a normal person that understands electronics would go to you know the hardware store and buy you know 16 gauge or 14 gauge zip cord, or if you had a longer run or really big speakers with a lot that needed a lot of current, you could use you know 12 gauge Romex, the kind of cable you use in your wall. But that stuff is not expensive. It's you know costs whatever copper costs. So time. so the thin stuff is bad, okay, but right, you but not he- you know yeah. the heavier is good up to a point. Up to a point, and then they kept getting matter. it, making it heavier and heavier because they could sell more of it at more expensively. Right, and they use a lot of you know, and the speaker cable companies would try would would sell stuff, and maybe it was a few hundred dollars, uh, you know, thirty years ago. But you can spend ten thousand dollars on a pair of speaker wires now, no. and it gets even stupider than that. The latest thing in in quote wire scams is power cables. They want you to buy replacement power cords. Because they, they sound better. Because they say they sound better. Mm. And people believe it because hearing is pretty frail. I was involved in a test recently that actually went wrong on one of the audio forums, and we put up uh, recordings made through three different converters at the same time. Actually, two of them through at the same time, and okay. one was a copy. And I uh, made a mistake, and uh, we put up two files were identical, uh, <laughs> okay. I see where this is going. Correct. And I hit a wrong button while I was exporting from Sonar, and uh, and actually exported the original. Anyway, this is a long story. So two files were put up, one you know uh, uh, that were exactly the same, and you wouldn't believe the comments. People were saying, "Oh, well, file A is much smoother and more musical than file C, and or file C sounds very smooth, but file A hit." And after about <laughs> twenty people had commented like that. Uh, we realized uh, that the two of the files were exactly the same. They nulled. They were, you know, exactly digitally the same. identical. Now you said you just said something that's very interesting. Nulled. They nulled. Explain right. what the null test is. And I guess you have to explain phase cancellation a little bit. Uh, yeah. Well, the, well, phase and polarity are, are, are sort of related, but not really the same. Let me preface this with: if you go to YouTube and search for my name, Ethan Weiner, I have a one-hour video of an AES. A presentation that's the Audio Engineering Society from last October presentation I did with a couple of uh, uh, hearing experts uh, where we went over all this stuff and uh, for anybody that really cares about how audio works it's a very worthwhile one hour to sit back and watch uh, or even to disprove you know claims that one file is different is different right. not that sounds better but is different from it's another right, if it's even different at all at all but I, but I just mentioned this because all, all the stuff. Uh, uh, that I'm in, interested in with all this audio mythbusting is all addressed in this one-hour video, okay. and it talks about null tests. But yeah, if you have, uh, in, in this case, this, in fact, this is how somebody, how, how, how uh, somebody else, one of the listeners, I didn't realize that we had put up this, you know, uh, the same file as two, with two different names, and a guy uh, nulled them in a DAW. And what you do is uh, you, you just put uh, in a multi-track recording, digital recording setup, you put a track. Uh, you put a file into track one, you put another file that you think might be the same or maybe not, or you want to see how close they are, mm. you put it into track two, and you have to line them up left and right in time so that uh, the peaks are exactly the same. Right. And you reverse the polarity of one file, and you make sure that they're the same volume. Now, when you're reversing the polarity, that means that when wave A is at plus five, wave B will be at minus five, right? Exactly, or if you would, were playing, you know, playing the music when the speaker is moving for, would have moved forward on one file it's moving back drawing into the cabinet okay. on the other the same you know same idea so it's All not right. really phase shift but it's 
It's just a simple polarity reversal. And you can do that with your your any DAW. You can just say reverse the polarity on this wave file. Uh, yeah, I would think most of them have that. Yep. Uh, Sonar has that on every single track. It's a little, little click. You know, Audition does button. too. Yeah, and and if you and if the the files might be similar but not identical, in which case you end up with a residual that may be forty dB down or twenty dB down or if, seventy dB down. But if they're identical, you when you mix them together or play yeah. them together, well, the best way to do it is to mix them down well, into well, a well, single yeah. file. And if you see nothing like right. silence, they are identical. They are identical. And, and, and that disproves, uh, disproves people to say, well, I can hear this difference. And this is really the issue with all of these audio myth things. is isn't so much, well, is this audible, is that audible? Right. Uh, do speaker wires matter? Really the issue is that people's auditory memory is very, very short. And okay. uh, my partner, Doug, uh, 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 records, he has a home studio and he records bands for hire. Mm-hmm. And he had a, uh, a band come in. And they sent out, and they made a CD, and they sent it out to this uh, for duplication. And the band decided they were going to have the record company, uh, the duplicating company, add mastering. It was like, you know, for two hundred dollars more, we'll master it. So, okay. So I went over to Doug's, and he said, you know, I just got this uh, proof CD back, and I can't really t- tell what they did. You know, it's, I can't really hear a difference between what I sent them and what they sent back. They were, you know, we paid them two hundred bucks or whatever uh, to master this. So, and we were playing on his computer CD drive. So he puts the original that he sent out into the drive, and we went to track four or whatever it was and played it, and I listened for 10 seconds. Then we kicked that drive out, put the other one in. 30 seconds later, we were able to play the second one. Well, I don't know. It sounds the same. I don't know. Maybe there's a little more bass. I can't tell. So we extracted wave files from both CDs, put them into Soundforge so we could play a second of one, and then immediately play the other. And only then could we tell that really they were exactly the same. And so the guy did nothing. Right, the guy did nothing. I mean, we could have nulled them, but you know, but just listening. The only way you can really tell when there's subtle differences uh, is to you know play one right after the other. Uh, one of the hearing experts in my AES uh, video said that auditory memory is good for about a quarter of a second. <laughs> <laughs> now, and also, if you, if you move your head or turn your turn right. your head just a little bit or move literally an inch or two, the frequency response at each ear that you get just due to reflections around the room and different arrival times from the two speakers right. uh, changes the response a lot. That's one of the other articles. If I you have turn it study. up or turn it down, you're going to change it, really change it. Well, yeah, and if, and if the two things aren't level matched, I mean, when you turn something up louder, it sounds fuller. It, you know, the low end comes up and the high end comes up. It sounds clearer, spark, more sparkly, and more full, and all you did was change the volume. Right. So, uh, yeah. so that's, to me, really kind of the final frontier is getting people to understand that their hearing isn't as reliable as they think, because that explains all of these scams, why yeah. people buy into these scams, like speaker cable elevators. I don't know if you've seen those, but you can speaker spend $100 Speaker cable elevators. Speaker cable elevators, you said. Yeah, there's little gadgets. I mean, they, you know, you can get them for you know, $25 a piece. I've seen them for $100 a piece. They're just little blocks that you put under your speaker wires so the wires don't actually sit on the floor. You know, so they... <laughs> 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 and people swear they hear, they hear a difference, and they oh. buy them. You know, they come home, the dealer say, here, try this, and they take them home, and son of a gun, you know, they, they, they think they hear a difference. And if you challenge them... In an audio form, you say, well, geez, have you ever measured? Oh, I don't need science. Well, do you realize that it's not physically possible that lifting the speaker wires off the floor is going to change the sound at all? And yeah. they get really, really pissed because you're challenging their beliefs. Right. Yeah. And it is belief, too. I mean, it's religion. So the, this this company that's made a fortune selling overpriced cable actually has a spiel of a scientific, a quasi-scientific spiel about 
electrons traveling in both directions and yeah. things like that. Yeah. In oh, wire directionality. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. What's this? What's their? What's their claim? Well, well, yeah. Well, they say yeah. This end goes to you know to your receiver, and that end goes to the you know to the speaker or whatever. But you know, if a wire favored one direction over another, because you know audio is AC, so it goes both directions and right. keeps changing. If a wire favors one direction more than the other, that's called a diode, and that means you're adding a whole pile of distortion. <laughs> right, <know>? right. <laughs> yeah, so that's not a good thing, actually. So, and they oh, also have uh, one that says that uh, a wire that has a thick core. Because bass frequencies travel a, through a thick core, right? And so that's <laughs> isolated from the outside wrap, which is where the treble frequencies. Right. Well, well, you know, this happens a lot, and I see this with alternative medicine uh, uh, nonsense also, where they'll have a grain scientific of sounding phrases, and there will be a germ of truth to yeah. it. And it's true, there is a thing called skin effect, where higher right. frequencies ride on the outside of the cable. But that happens, like you know, at hundreds of kilohertz and megahertz yeah. ranges. And has nothing to do with audio. Uh, Not even auditory. Your dog can't even hear that. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so, but on the other hand, you know, you don't want to get a cheap, cheap cable. I mean, you want a cable that's decent. But you do. You, uh, are all cable manufacturers basically jacking up the price of their cables now? Well, can you get anything for twenty bucks anymore? Oh sure. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, look, there are places where cables matter, and cables are not all the same. For the most part, they are. And any competent cable, I mean, really, what matters is build quality and how well the connectors are made. Yeah. And uh, you know, if and if you're a gigging musician and you keep calling up your guitar cord all the time, uh, or your PA system wires, obviously you don't want them to break or you know fail right, physically. Right, right. And a cable capacitance uh, is a spec that does matter in some cases. Uh, but, you know, any competent cable, I mean, you know, 20 cents a foot is all you need to pay for a normal balanced line level cable. Yeah, okay. Hey, I just want to give a shout out real quick to our friends at Data Dynamics who uh, make ActiveReports.net, among other really awesome things. ActiveReports.net is great because uh, it allows you to just build your reports with an easy editor, embed them right in your application, provide PDF and HTML output. Give your end users a report editor, royalty-free, of course, a great access report upsizing wizard, and all this for a price that isn't going to break the bank. ActorReports.net from Data Dynamics. Go check it out now at datadynamics.com. I'm, uh, I'm reading a conversation from 2005 on cable elevators where the guy <laughs> says, you know, I got pretty good results out of Dixie Cups. But I spray painted them black. Yeah, <laughs> it's crazy. There, well, there's an audio form called the Audio Asylum, which is a perfect name for it. <laughs> and I go there every day for my daily laugh. <laughs> no idea is too stupid. Uh, no tweak is is too preposterous. They call these tweaks, you know, like cable elevators and. A lot of this comes, Ethan, just because people audio is so amorphous to them, and they, and it's it's magic, and um, they don't understand it and how to get good audio. It, you know, obviously, we're in a position at Pop Studios that we have this podcast, and we're constantly getting comments from people that say their sound quality is really good. Had a conversation with a guy not two hours ago that uh, he said, you know, what? How do you do that? And, you know, the answer is we're using, I use a $100 microphone. I use an Audio-Technica AT2020. 
That's what I've used for most of the time. Mm-hmm. And I use a $20 XLR cable mm-hmm. going into a snake that goes into a preamp that's like a Focusrite preamp that if you broke it down per preamp probably costs about 40 bucks. And then going into a digital audio workstation that, you know, has the same specs as a sound blaster. The difference is more, I think, the room you're recording it in. Would you agree? Uh, absolutely, right. And that's what makes uh, amateur recording sound amateur because they sound boxy and off mic and distant and hollow because yeah. you're recording in a bedroom and you have, you know, ceiling and four walls all real close. And, uh, and, and in the real world, there just aren't good sounding spaces for recording. That's why you have studios. That's right. Well, especially small rooms. And you can make right. room, small rooms sound good with, with good acoustic treatment, which, of course, is, is what I do these days. Yeah. Uh, but in a larger room, we'll have less, less of that kind of problem. If you have a really large, great room, living room, uh, you, can, you could do pretty good there if you don't have the mics too far away. Yeah, and that's because the, the, the sound takes time to, to travel to the wall and back to the microphone. And in that time, the, the signal degrades, right? Well, well it, right. It gets softer as it travels to a farther wall and back. And also when the reflections, when the echoes come back more than about 20 or 30 milliseconds later, which would be, you know, a 20 or 30 foot round trip, uh, and if the wall is 30 feet away, that's like 60 milliseconds before it comes back. So it's softer and also later. And then it sounds more pleasant when it's very early, like uh, if a reflection comes away, from, you know, back from a wall that's only four or five feet away. Yeah. Uh, it's called, it's considered an early reflection. And that's where you get that hollow, distant, you know, off mic boxy kind of sound. Yeah. Uh, and you, of course, you know the solution for that is is absorption. Right. But but yes, the, it's never the gear. It's and this is really kind of my entire mission with with all of this uh, uh, audio myth busting. Right. Is because I I go to a lot of audio farms. And I'm gonna say, gee, my mixes really suck. I don't know what to do. So I was thinking I would buy this preamp. Right. You know, <laughs> yeah. No, that's that'll that's, fix it. That's right. what people think. Yeah. Uh, I think this explanation here is the best one I've seen so far. Uh, uh, human isolation works best. I ask my wife and three children to hold the cables while I'm listening. <laughs> <laughs> but here, one thing that I, I tell people to do is if they're recording a pod, because podcasts are everywhere, right? Everybody wants to record a podcast, but they all sound like ass. And one of the reasons is that, first of all, people just don't know basics about setting levels. And um, people are using their computers when they really should be using a dedicated device because if you get it sounding good on your computer Tuesday, by Wednesday you've completely changed everything. And by the way, you might have some something churning away in the background robbing you of CPU cycles. So get a get a three hundred dollar Zoom or something like that, and get a good condenser microphone. But then I tell them you're in a hotel room, put your microphone in a pillow. And hold it up to your mouth about five uh, five inches away. But off to the side. Off to the side the so you don't get right. the popping. And it's going to sound great. And it's yeah. a pillow. Yeah. And my yeah. company sells a product called the Portable Vocal Booth for that. And it's, you know, it's a professional product. It's, it's, a better, it's better than a pillow and it looks right. nicer. Uh, but, you know, but a pillow works and, and soft things and, you know, and, and, and a bunch of clothes hanging in a closet yep. uh, works. I mean, all that stuff. You want to just get rid of those reflections that make it sound distant, boxy, and off mic. Yeah. Hollow. Yeah. Uh, from uh, Twitter, JRCS3 made this comment. Uh, My little brother likes LPs, but I think it's the ritual of playing the record that makes you really listen. And uh, I can relate to that. Because yeah. It, it, it's so casual now to turn on an iPod or any of those sorts of things. The right. ritual of really listening to music. Yeah. Right. And, yeah, and when I was young, in my 20s, I mean, we used to put on a 
CD. My, my first stereo was a pair of guitar amps, and they weren't even matched. One was a bandmaster and one was a basement. <laughs> it's what you had, right? It, it's what I had. I, made, I, I, I built my own uh, phono preamp. You know, with that, I was mentioning the RIAA equalization that's needed to get a flat response. And I ran off a nine volt battery for I don't know fifty hours, and and that was the, that was my stereo, and and you know, I put on you know the Who, and you know whatever was out uh, you know in the sixties and Jeff Beck and stuff, and crank it up, and it was really loud and really full, and it sounded great. You, you said know? you listened to your CDs, but they were LPs, really. Yeah, <laughs> I think she said that by mistake, but but yeah, that's uh, I remember sitting on my you know at Christmas time getting records for. Uh, my, you know, for a present, and just sitting on the floor looking at the jackets and going through that that ritual. Yeah, that was that was fun. But it was a simpler time. We didn't have email to check all the time. True. We didn't have kids, and we didn't have you know cars and stuff. We had attention <laughs> <You know>? spans, <laughs> right? <laughs> and uh, it, you know, this is like the other. In my day, we used to sit around and listen to records. <laughs> no, but you know, the, but it does. You know, this sort of instant push button audio really does. Uh, propagate the myth that audio is is easy and you know it's everywhere it's ubiquitous so people don't pay attention to it when they have to produce themselves they think you know they can just get whatever gear they can get and it should sound fine and when it doesn't sound fine you know they think it's the gear right and and obviously and besides having a, a quiet clean sounding room you have to know what you're doing right you know with digital it's not so bad uh you know in the in the days of analog you had to record as close to you know distortion as you could get but not quite at distortion right. just to get above the tape hits right and it was a little more of an art and a skill uh than today but still you have to know what you're doing and i see people all the time that don't understand the basics of the tools equalization and compression and obviously yeah. moving the microphone a little bit uh will change the sound quite a lot yeah and uh so, yeah, yeah. It's, it's about learning what you're doing, <laughs> not a right. magic uh, gear purchase that will magically make everything sound wonderful. Um, a lot of people don't understand the difference between uh, MP3 kilobits per second bit rate mm -hmm. and, and uh, sample rate, because mm -hmm. there are two rates when you're looking at an MP3. Right. Well, the sample frequency, right, well, yeah, the sample frequency and the bit rate, and, yeah, because that's, that's a lossy compression. Yeah. Well, so there you go. Let's let's talk about that. Um, we're we're here to educate. So the sample rate, of course, is how many bits per second you are sampling. Well, how, the, how many times you're taking a snapshot? You know, the, the typical right. uh, analogy is like a movie, which is really 24 still pictures taken every single second. And uh, right, how many? It doesn't define the sample size. It just defines how many samples per second. Right, how often the snapshot is taken of the current uh, you know, acoustic pressure in the right. room or the signal coming out of the microphone. So the standard is 44,100. Right, times per second. Per that's second. The, that's the sample rate. That's not the bit rate. Right, the, the sample right. rate. And, this, and then the, the, the bit width is usually 16-bit. And we can right. talk about 16 versus 24 versus 32 right. uh, another in, in a few minutes. But needless to say, 16-bit 44.1 is the standard. And then the bit rate, with, when you're talking about MP3s in compression, that's how many bits or kilobits per second are being processed by the compressor, right? Right, right. And the more bits are per processed per second, the higher, you could say the higher the resolution is, but the better the quality is. because right, the better the quality, yeah. Yeah, but yeah. The, the higher the CPU demand to, uh, to decode. Right, right. Well, of course, that's a different issue. You know, how, much, how hard the computer has to work to 
make the MP3 file or play back the MP3 file is different from, you know, I mean, most end users don't care about that. Don't they don't care. care how hard their MP3 player has to work. Yeah, I remember, but back in the earlier days when, you know, MP3s were just hitting our PCs, I remember playing an MP3 file and then, you know, going to do something else and hearing it stutter mm. because it was taking up so much CPU. Yeah. You know, yeah. this is before... Yeah, oh, back well, in the old days, back in the old days, this was the limit of the machines was decoding. Uh, That's MP3. right. So if you you know theoretically decrease the bit rate, then uh, you might have might have had an easier time. But the artifacting is is what happens when the bit rate is too low. Right, and and what they're doing is they're throwing away information. The algorithm that makes the MP3 looks at the audio and says, well, you know, there's this symbol crash, but it's already faded out by 40 dB. Nobody can hear that because there's a hi hat on top of that. So they throw away information that they deem to be inaudible, and the lower the bit rate, the more aggressive the uh, the algorithm is with discarding stuff. Yeah, so, you know the standard used to be 128 uh, kilobits per second for MP3s, and you know, and most people could hear that a little bit, but it was still good, and it is still better than vinyl and analog tape. Uh, but these days, when I make MP3s, I do them at 192, and I know yeah. you do. I think 256. Well, if we're if we're recording, uh, if we're if Richard and I are like out on a you know conference or something, we're recording something remotely, and we want to send it up, we'll do it at 320. Right. And just you know, I I just don't I, I don't want any kind of loss, you know, as little as possible because it's going to be re-encoded. That's another thing too. Well, that's right. Right. Yeah, re-encoding. So let's say you've got a I don't know a 96k. Stereo MP3, which is, by the way, what you're listening to right now on the stream, and uh, .NET Rocks is publishes 96k, so it's good. It's good for talking, but not so great for music. And you take that and put it, drop it into a movie like Windows Movie Maker, and then you mix down your movie into a WMV file, which is compressing the already compressed audio again. the The final audio is going to be compressed twice and it's right. going to sound like doo-doo. right it'll be degraded even further, even and, further. and yeah i mean if you start you know if you download an mp3 file and you want to make your own mixtape or something or mix version right. or you want to put it onto a cd but you're going to do some editing and you're going to uh, whatever you or any even if you don't do any processing if you download an mp3 and put it onto a cd burning program uh no i'm sorry but, but yeah if it gets put into an mp3 again right uh, uh then it's getting compressed twice and, and yep. it's degraded uh, and the same with video and it, here's right. another thing we do we when richard um we talked about our process of how we do the podcast earlier i think uh who was the guest that was andrew brust was, yeah andrew brust was on what was nestor nestor yeah. asked from yeah mm-hmm. So um, Richard actually is in Vancouver most of the time, and he records his wave file locally, and uh, we record his phone track here. And then he uses a tool called FLAC, and this is purely for the listeners out there. FLAC stands for Free Lossless Audio Codec. And it, think of it like zip for wave files. You know right. how when you zip a doc file or something like that and you unzip it, you get exactly what you started with. Well, that's what FLAC does. It compresses by, you know, we get about 60 to 75% compression because we're just talking and there are long periods of silence. Um, so it's really good for this. And we compress it down just so it takes less time to transmit over the Internet to us. And then on this side, we unflack it or deflack it, decode it, turn it back into its original wave file. So, but, you know, here are... I, I run into occasionally people who tell me that FLAC files sound better than WAV files. Right. Well, of course, yeah. that's ridiculous. And, it's, and vice versa. That's like saying zip files, uh, you know, if you zip your JPEG, it's going to look better. 
than than a, than an RIR file. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. And uh, what was the other thing? Oh yeah, we were going to talk about the difference between sixteen uh, bit, twenty four bit, and thirty two bit. And um, if you're just recording a, a file and you want to play it back without kind of combining it and with any other files or mixing it, sixteen bit is totally fine. But there is actually a case for using a higher bit rate when you're mixing files gonna, together. Isn't that right? The, I'm gonna, no, there isn't. I'm going to debunk there isn't. that one. No, all right. Not at all, no. Uh, they, they, that, that's another myth that I debunk in my uh, hour-long AES Myths video on YouTube. Tell us, uh, then. They, they call that the stacking myth, that when you, you know, and you know, I'll say, uh, you know, somebody will say, oh, you know, tell a newbie who's unhappy with their productions, you know, oh, you got to buy really good A to D converter. You got to spend at least a grand a channel to get professional results. And I'll come in and say, no, that's not true. Mm-hmm. You can record that with a sound blaster card for $25 and it'll be fine. Maybe not quite as good, but it'll be fine. It's not going to be the limiting factor in some home studio. Right. And I'll say, and it's easy to prove, just take a CD that you think sounds really, really good, really great sound in CD, and play it out of your CD player analog and record it into your sound blaster or whatever sound card you happen to have. Do you mean and like play with, it a, back. with a microphone? No, 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 not with a microphone, oh, okay. but, but, you know, but through the analog outline, line level output connections out of your oh, okay. CD player, headphone out or whatever, and rec- put it into the line-in of your sound card. You know, just make a one-to-one analog, analog recording. Okay. Of, of a CD you think sounds really good, and then play it back. Does uh-huh. it sound good? Does it still sound the same? Well, then there you go. Your sound card is great. Okay. Or, or at least it's good enough to you know, not be a, a big problem. And then these, these people will say, well, no, there's stacking. What happens is you can't hear the degradation from an inexpensive sound card until you record like you know, five tracks and then mix them together. And that's just absolutely true. You can disprove it mathematically and uh, uh, easily and, and you can just do your own recordings and you can prove that it's not true. But no, uh, the only difference between 16 bits and 24 bits is the amount of noise. Mm-hmm. And the noise in a 16-bit file is really, really, really soft. I mean, I have never, I've heard tape hiss and cassette hiss many times. I've never heard the residual hiss on a CD, and I doubt that anybody has because it's just so low and so soft below the music that it's just not an, an so issue. You're, so you're saying when you record a multi like if I'm recording a band and I've got 10 tracks or something, um, uh, and I record them in 16-bit, and then... Let's say uh, I want to raise volumes and lower volumes, and um, you know, do some stuff with those files. Maybe do some noise reduction. Maybe do some EQ, and then mix them all together. There's there isn't an issue. Don't I have? No. Isn't there an issue of headroom with using 24 bits? That if nope. you nope. Nope. raise the volume and lower the volume, you will. Well, well, no, that's a different issue. That's the distortion from changing. The data. If you like raise a track by you know six dB or whatever, whether you record it as a twenty-four bits or sixteen bits or whatever, yeah. uh, a little bit of math is done as multiplication. There will be some rounding errors at mm-hmm. literally seventeen or ten decimal places out or something, and that can be related to distortion. I did a test okay. of uh, of thirty-two uh, bit data. Well, so here's here's well here's the main thing. Uh, all modern, almost all modern recording programs, except for I think Pro Tools, they all use what's called thirty-two bit floating point math. Mm-hmm. For their, uh, you know, for the calculation. So if you record as a 16-bit file, the first thing the program does, and you got, you know, ten tracks or something, as it reads the ten tracks from hard disk, the first thing it does is it uh, up converts it to 32 bits. So all the math is done at 32 bits. So every every operation adds literally point oh 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 something percent distortion. 
Uh, <laughs> wow. So it, so it really doesn't matter whether you're starting with 16 bits or 24. Okay. Again, it's only noise. And the noise is always going to be dominated by the room. I have a really quiet yeah. home studio. I mean, it's a really nice room. The air conditioning is extremely quiet. And still, you know, I'm you know, I, I'm looking at, I was looking at the record meter uh, for what I'm recording now, and it was hovering around minus 69 on my meter. Now, the noise from a from a CD is, you know, like close to minus 95, 96. So yeah. it's minus 70. So it's like the, the noise in my room is 25 dB louder than the residual right. noise. It's of the, kind of, of silly. Yeah. Of 16 yeah. bit recording. So it's always, and you were talking about adding noise reduction to your tracks. That's to get, not to get rid of the, the medium hiss, but to get rid of room noise. I right. Assume. Yeah. Room you noise. Know? Yeah. And we always take a noise profile to get the room noise yeah. exactly. on the recording. Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, so 16 bits is far. Now, if I was recording a classical concert, I would probably do it at 24 bits. I've done it at 16. I used Just to, because I there's so many soft passages? Well, yeah, and it's still, even in a quiet concert hall, the uh, uh, the recording, you know, the, the ambient noise of air conditioning and, and airflow is still going to be above the hiss of the medium. But it's, it's more at the other end. When, uh, when you ask an orchestra, if you're lucky enough to get there during the dress rehearsal before the concert, you say, hey, just... Play that loudest part as loud as you can, and you yeah. try to get fairly close to zero if you're recording at 16 bits. But you yeah. know they're going to hit it even harder during yeah. the concert. So then, so you'd really like to leave 10 or 15 dB of headroom. I got but it. Then, but then that means your average recording level during most of the concert is around minus 30, and that's kind of low for 16 bits. So uh, is this what you talk about in your podcast? Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, it's, where do we well, get that? Well, well, it's, it's my AES audio myths video okay i have watched this video it's absolutely excellent you sent it to me yeah it's there's nothing like this out there because no no company that sells any audio gear is going to touch this guy no you know (laughs) they hate me they hate him so but (laughs) but anyway ethan i could talk to you for another two or three hours but we really do have to wrap it up but thank you so much for talking to us all right excellent well carl thank you for thinking of me this is uh lots of fun i i just love to talk about this stuff and Richard, and uh, I'll, I'll talk to you later. My pleasure, sir. All right. All right, see ya. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website, at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.